On Saturday, the 26th of May 2018, at approximately 2 a.m., the town of Stella in the northwest was changed forever. In a moment of violence, two young girls lost their lives. Their youth, hopes, dreams and futures smothered and snatched away. In the wake of their murders, one small town and countless families had to come to terms with the unbearable truth. The killer was one of them. Evil did not visit Stella from the unkind outside world that night. Those cruel hands were homegrown. And the murders of Charnel Ho and Marna Engelbrecht would become a spectre that haunts countless lives. This is a Killer Audio Creations production. This podcast may contain graphic information related to the crimes committed by the perpetrators. Sensitive listeners should take this into consideration. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Killer Audio Creations, Showmax, or their partners. Welcome to the official companion podcast to the Showmax original documentary, Stella Murders. My name is Nicole Engelbrecht. I'm a true crime podcaster and author. You may know me from my podcast, True Crime South Africa, or the first official companion podcast I did with Showmax for Devil's Dorp. The Devil's Dorp documentary and podcast were both very popular, and although I suspected this while I was working on that project, I now know that the reason my style of podcasting gels so well with these documentaries is because of the victim focus. If you've watched Stella Murders, you'll know that there is no sensationalist promoting of violence or murder in there. It's an ode to the two young women who lost their lives. When the perpetrator is discussed, it's in the context of understanding. That is the nature of what Showmax, David Enright and his team do in the true crime genre. And it's the reason I always feel privileged to work with them on these projects. As was the trend in the documentary, you will not get any salacious, unsubstantiated theories or grandstanding here. What you will get is a deeper exploration of all of the aspects of this crime. We'll talk about why and how this crime so deeply impacted the people of a small town called Stella, abusive relationships in the context of teenagers, as well as child-on-parent abuse. And we'll see if we can answer some of the unanswered questions. This podcast series will not be a blow-by-blow account of the case and what happened. That's not the purpose. Rather, it's a roving microscope on important issues, keeping in mind that everyone looks through that microscope with a different eye, an alternate perspective. And that's okay too. You don't have to agree with everything that's said here. But I think Charnel and Marna deserve for their murders to serve some small, greater purpose. And perhaps education can be that purpose. If you haven't watched the Stella Murders documentary on Showmax, you need to do that first, and then come back here. I'm not going anywhere, I promise. With that said, let's get into episode one of the Stella Murders official companion podcast. Meet Stella. You must picture the consternation of our little town, hitherto so tranquil, and now out of the blue shaken to its core, like a quite healthy man who all of a sudden feels his temperature shoot up and the blood seething like wildfire in his veins. 
Albert's chemist. What am I? Is he a spider? Is he a policeman? Man, I can make it fall. We think he's gay. No, come, man. You'll wash out In the run-up to this documentary being made, I got a sneak peek of the clip I just played for you. The voice and the face of the man speaking have been altered to protect his identity, but the intense emotion in his voice is what reached out and grabbed me. It's what made me think that I needed to understand why he was so angry. From the documentary, you'll recall the scene. It's an isolated farm road. A female member of the production team is confronted by a man whose voice you can hear. He wants to know why they're there. What business do they have on that road, in that town, in his town? He undoubtedly knows why they're there. And I thought as I watched the scene play out, as the woman tried unsuccessfully to explain herself, that this man is Stella. He's not angry. He's in pain. And I wanted to understand why. Stella is a cattle farming community situated in the northwest province of South Africa, between Mafeking and Freiburg. The large salt pan on the outskirts of town, which at one point was well known for the number of lions it attracted, was once used to extract salt commercially, but it's now just another feature in the odd mix of the town. Electricity was only introduced to Stella in 1973. Its population, as at the 2011 census, was just 890 people, with 63% of those being white and Afrikaans-speaking. The Stella Biosphere is held every year during October. It's an event that brings annual tourism and much-needed money to the town. And it really is an event that the town has been built around. You'll remember from Zander Bailsma's confession tape that he mentions he'd parked near the Biosphere's grounds. What makes Stella a little different from other small agricultural towns is that it has both a primary and a high school. Now, you may not think that's a huge deal, but for rural communities, it is, because very often rural families are forced to send their children to boarding schools because there aren't schools close enough to their homes. And Stella has become a boarding school town. Children from all the surrounding communities come to Stella to attend school and stay in the hostel there. And they become as much a part of the town's community as the children whose families live there. And this, of course, is how the three main people in this tragic tale came to be in one place at one time. Chanel Ho lived in the hostel at Stella High School during the week. When she wasn't there, she lived at her father's farm in Delareville, which is a 45-minute drive from Stella with her father, stepmother and sister. Her mother lived at a vacation resort in Costa and also worked there. Costa is about 250 kilometers from Stella. Chanel would visit her mom occasionally on weekends and often during school holidays. Mona Engelbrecht lived in the hostel at Stella High School during the week. Her parents and sister live on a farm called Bertha Stoltz in the district of Freiburg. Zander Bailsma had matriculated in 2017. His parents were also divorced, and he lived with his father and stepmother on the farm that had been passed down from his grandfather, also in the district of Freiburg. The intention was that the farm would be handed down to Zander when he was ready. So he was working at the farm with his father after he left school, but he still spent a significant amount of time in Stella. And it would be Stella High School, and ultimately the hostel there, 
that would become the nexus point for Zander and Charnel's relationship. Charnel and Marna's friendship, and the crime that would follow, which would destroy all three lives. There's something I've noticed about crimes that occur in small towns, especially ones like this, that become immensely publicised. I noticed it with the Krugersdorp cult killings case too. The small town in which the case occurs almost becomes a character in the case. It happened with Krugersdorp, and it happened with Stella. The town might not have been able to testify in court, but everything about the crime is underpinned by the location in which it occurred. And this doesn't happen with crimes that occur in the big cities. Hence the title of this episode, Meet Stella. In the documentary, we hear from several people who've lived in Stella most of their lives, and their passion and love for their community is really clear. And to be fair, it's not the physical location itself that plays a role in this crime. It's the combination of the location, the history, and the people. And exactly the same was true for Krugersdorp. While a crime of this nature could occur anywhere, there are clear aspects of where it's occurred that impacted the before, during, and especially the aftermath of the murders of Charnel Ho and Marna Engelbrecht. I wondered how, if at all, the town of Stella played a role in the investigation and reporting around this case. Did those involved come up against the level of emotion displayed in that voice clip regularly, or was it just a once-off? We met private investigator Chris Saunders in the documentary. Something that struck me about this case was how quickly a PI was involved and how much access he had to the scene and the suspect, seemingly without question. And I don't say that because I think it's a negative thing. I say that because, in my experience, with the more than 100 other cases I've researched, PIs are hardly ever brought in at this early stage. I discussed this with Chris too, but we'll get to that a bit later. First, I wanted to know whether Chris had different experiences with cases in small towns compared to big cities. Chris was most comfortable answering in Afrikaans, and as subtitles aren't possible in audio-only formats, I'll give English-speaking listeners a summary of what he says after each clip. Chris is an experienced investigator. He's handled cases in both small towns and big cities. So I asked whether he felt it was different to investigate cases when they happen in a small town compared to when they happen in a big city. And is the way he investigates any different? Does he find that people in a small town are less likely to share information? Nee, I can't say that it's different to in a, in a plattelandse dorp to do something as in a big city. My onderzoek methode is blij maar diezelfde. Dus kijk naar die toneel, je zoek leideraden. So, dat is niet veel verschil voor mij. Ja, die mensen is niet geneig in een plattelandse dorp, een klein dorpje om betrokken te raken. Alle uh, wil niet zomaar betrokken raken en in hoofd gaan staan. Dat is maar mijn zin. Uh, Chris says no, he doesn't experience a difference in the cases themselves and he doesn't investigate any differently. But he does agree that people in small towns are far less likely to want to contribute information to an investigation because they know they'll likely end up having to testify in court. Of the people I spoke with for this podcast, Chris was the first to get involved in the case but as is naturally the case, the investigators were quickly followed by the media. You'll likely remember Mariska Kutzer from the Devil's Dorp documentary. She's a journalist and author, and when covering the Krugersdorp cult murders, she found herself drawn personally into that case, 
when she developed a close relationship with one of the accused, LaRue Stain. That relationship has since ended, and the fallout of it professionally and personally has been extremely difficult for Mariska. But it's had one unexpected benefit. She's developed a far deeper understanding than most journalists of the difficulties that offenders' families face. And as a result, she's often able to get closer to them than most of her colleagues. This was the case in the Stella murders too. Mariska was able to connect with Zander's mother, Mersha, and the woman shared quite significantly with her about her son and his crime. Before I get into that with Mariska, though, I wanted to know what her experience of Stella was. How did she feel it was different, if at all, from running down a story in a big city? The Stella case is really a very interesting case, and it comes near to my heart. Because I remember when the story broke and our editors actually let us know that, you know, there has been this bizarre incident. Um, Initially, we thought it was a suicide, a double suicide. But our editors basically told us, guys, pack your bags. You're going to Stella. You need to go find out, you know, what happened there. You know, if I think about Stella, there's one word that comes to mind. And it's an Afrikaans word. And the word is hartverskeren. I don't know. That's how I would describe the story from the beginning to the end. But yeah, um, I got involved while working at Heisgenoot. Myself and two colleagues went down to Stella um, the following day. And we basically lived there for a week trying to uncover, you know, this tragedy that happened in the small town. When we initially got to Stella, and we actually lived on Freiburg, so that's the town you know, just next to Stella. But most of the children that um, went to the school in Stella, their parents lived in Freiburg and the surrounding areas. So that was like a big town, you know, close to where the incident happened. And like I said before, you know, when we initially jumped onto the story, we had no idea what, you know, was waiting for us. And we rushed through to Stella the next day. And that's when we started digging in. Just to give you an idea, you know, we live and work in Pretoria, Halting, Johannesburg. But when you get to a small town, I, feel, I, I felt like the media was something foreign to them, you know. Mm. And while we were there, it really felt like, you know, we felt like the aliens looking in, you know, because mm. I think these people in this town also at that point were so shocked about what happened. You know, they were very resistant. They didn't speak easily. No comment. We're not talking to the media, you know, that type of thing. But what was very interesting is, and, you know, till today, we made a lot of friends in that town, you know. Um, we started speaking to the residents. We went to a local pub where we met farmers. So mm-hmm. it was a very, very interesting story because the information wasn't that forthcoming. It wasn't everyone else. Nobody knew what happened. You know, so we dealt with these small-town people going through a major shock, and now you've got national media, you know, in their hometown, busy trying to upturn every single stone to get to a story. I think Mariska points out the biggest difference that Stella presented in her reporting right in that sentence. It's quite rare that a journalist would need to spend as much time as she did covering a single story in situ. She had to immerse herself in Stella introduce herself to it, to get the full story. She wasn't just walking into a story and getting to know the people. Stella had to trust her first. Journalists are used to not being welcome in many of the places they go to. I asked Mariska if she felt that that had been more so in Stella than other places she'd worked in. The one thing that I've definitely realised is is that People from small towns, small communities, you know, it's like they it's like they are unable to deal with something this big. You know, it's like they shy away. It's like they close off. It's like, you know, I, I typically, you know, want to reference, let's say, if you think about an Afrikaner man, you know, that whole feeling of you're not allowed to cry. That is, you know, kind of the feeling I got, you know, about this. And, 
you know, it's, it wasn't like a normal story where everyone was skinnering or talking about, you know, what happened. You know, I, I feel like the whole town basically decided that, you know, when Zander handed himself over, everyone was kind of, they accepted, you know, it to be true and they didn't even question it, you know. So I feel, and even afterwards, it's like they don't want to talk about what happened. They want to try and bury it or carry on. Yeah. It's, they, they are definitely closed off. I think Marizga goes on to hit the nail on the head to a certain extent in what she says next. And while we were there, we not only, you know, kind of covered the human interest, the people, how it affected them, but we attended the first court appearance of the suspect or the convicted killer in this case now, Zander Balsma. But we also covered the, the funeral. It was really, really a big funeral. You know, um, we were driving out of respect. I didn't go into the funeral, you know, or into the proceedings. But there's something that I'll never forget is, is the balloons they let go. You know, that's something that kind of always stuck with me is, you know, all these people coming together, your farming community, very Afrikaans, their feelings. I think sometimes, you know, Afrikaans people, and especially like coming from small um, towns, you know, they have such raw ways of expressing um, their shock and their emotion. I think that in South Africa, the cultural makeup of a small town has a huge impact on the way that small town presents as a character in a case like this. As I mentioned before, Stella has more than 60% white Afrikaans-speaking residents. These are not highly emotionally expressive people. And perhaps that really adds to the desperately protective sense that we get from Stella. I spoke with Elmarie Clarsons, who you met in the documentary too. Elmarie is an experienced psychologist and provided some really interesting insights into the various aspects of this case. I wanted to get her professional perspective on exactly how the small town location may have impacted the psychology of this case and the aftermath. In smaller communities, people often have closer relationships with one another because there are less people and they are interdependent. So when tragedy occurs, this may lead to a greater sense of shared grief and even a desire to support one another more. That is in contrast, in a larger community, people may be more isolated from each other, making it harder to find support during difficult times. So smaller communities also often have a common identity or share common identity and a sense of belonging. And this can lead to a heightened sense of collective trauma and a shared experience of grief. And that makes it special in a small community. So we look at a greater sense of shared grief yeah, and a greater um, experience and collective trauma around it. that on the one hand. On the other hand, I think it's also interesting um, in small communities that rumours and misinformation can spread very quickly in the aftermath of a tragedy. And this can lead to heightened anxiety and stress among community members. Smaller communities also have usually have fewer resources available to support people during tragedy. I'm talking about mental health professionals or less access to crisis support hotlines, etc. So this makes up a bit of the experience after tragedy in a small community. The level of emotion we heard in the audio clip I played in the beginning of this episode is pretty intense. And it seems almost personal. Not personal in the sense that the crew are being targeted, but personal from the man experiencing the anger. It's almost as though he's been personally wronged by their presence in the town. I wondered when people live in a small town, how deeply does that become ingrained as part of their own identity? Could protecting that town's integrity and reputation become almost synonymous with protecting their own? 
when people live in a small town or a small community, their sense of identity and connection to that community can become deeply ingrained. And we can even see that as a shared identity. Not only individual identity, a shared identity. So this can be especially true for individuals who have grown up in a town and have strong family ties in the community. So in many cases, protecting the town's integrity and reputation can almost become synonymous with protecting their own identity and sense of belonging. I got the distinct feeling when I was listening to the level of anger in that man's voice, and then more so as I delved deeper into the dynamics of this small town, that it's this type of anger when it's an expression of deep pain and a perceived slight of shared identity that could very easily bubble over into mob justice acts. We heard Mariska Kutzer talk about how the people of Stella very quickly accepted that police had arrested the correct suspect and that the terror was contained. But when that doesn't happen, the deep fear of the unknown threat can manifest in many different and detrimental ways. When we talk about a shared identity and interdependence in conservative or small communities, um, people may even protect that identity. So it's us against the world. This little reality that is our whole reality against the world and can even try to protect this community from outside influences. We talk about outside influences from the big bad city even, to see the outside city as a bad place, and this community that we live in as wholesome and better. So when we look at that, we must remember that social norms and values are often tightly in small communities, and individuals will feel a sense of responsibility towards maintaining the social order. And also, when we think about a small community where there can also be ownership of land, then that might even contribute more to this responsibility towards not only maintaining social order, but also feeling that I am an owner here, because you are. So when a person commits a crime or an offense in such a community, it can be seen as a personal affront to the community, and people may even feel to take matters into their own hands. That on the one hand. On the other hand, it can also pull them together to keep other people, the others, out and out of this community and protect themselves against that. This idea of physical land ownership contributing to the sense of shared identity is an interesting one. And I wonder if the fact that Stella is a farming community where people do own land there, and perhaps have for generations, intensifies the sense of protecting the bubble from the outside world. But the truth was, the threats in this case did not come from the outside. As is almost always the case, the perpetrator was known to the victims. He was also well known to the community of Stella, He'd attended their high school. His family owned land in the district. He was not an outsider. He was one of them. And perhaps that only increased the level of emotion. There was no outlet, no external factor to blame, no big bad wolf from the big city to pin the crime on. At 6am on the 26th of May 2018, hostel mother Christelle Yuster woke, pulled on a jacket, and went to wake Chanel Ho and Mane Engelbrecht. The girls had stayed over the night before in an empty dormitory. They were to board the bus with the rugby team the next day to travel to Costa to visit Chanel's mother. The girls needed to be ready by 6.30am, so as Christelle padded through the halls of Stella High School, 
She briefly hoped the girls wouldn't give her too much trouble in getting up that morning. She'd need to climb one set of stairs to their room, but she would never set foot on those stairs, because before she could, a scene of horror would fill her view. Christelle discovered the body of Chanel Ho hanging from the stair railing. For a moment, she stood in shock, her body lame. Then she ran to raise the alarm. It would only be later that she'd realise she'd walked straight past the body of Mona Engelbrecht, who lay in the bathroom. In the hours that followed, wails of pain and horror echoed through the empty hallways of the hostel. As I heard descriptions of what had happened after the discovery of the two victims, who had been given access to the scene, and how things had played out, one thing stood out to me. Things happened differently in Stella. The parents of the girls were on the scene very soon, but not before the police. Captain Vainant Human had been a police officer for 28 years when he walked onto the scene that day. Although his first thought was a possible suicide, he knew well enough that any unnatural death investigation required that the evidence be protected. It's for this reason that Charnel Ho was not cut down by police officers or even the paramedics when they arrived to officially declare the two girls dead. Charnel's uncle, Louis, was the first of her family members on the scene that day, closely followed by her father, Ronnie. The men were horrified to see Charnel still hanging and immediately set about cutting her down. This in itself would be decried by the public later. People could not understand why these two men were allowed to touch Charnel's body, but I think we need to remember a few things here. We now know that this was not a suicide, but that wasn't known then, and it's really not uncommon at all for family members to cut down the bodies of their loved ones who have suicided by hanging. It's a horrific scene that no one wants to see. The other thing we need to remember is that at this point, there were one, maybe two police officers on site. And Ronnie and Louis were strapping men who were filled to the brim with the worst of emotions. And it wouldn't just be the scene around Charnel that was handled differently than we'd like to have seen. Marna Engelbrecht's mother and sister would also be on the scene soon after. They too would see Marna in situ, hunched over in the bathroom where she died. Although we did see a conviction in this case, the ongoing rumours and Zander Belsma's own claims of innocence have done nothing to help the victims here. And that is one of the reasons I wanted to better understand why there was so much access to the scene that day. I asked private investigator Chris Saunders for his opinion on this. Ja, die toegang wat uh, op die toneel wil, weet ek, die ouwers was op die toneel, ja, hulle het hulle kinders gesien. Wie gaan een ouwer buiten hou, as jou kind binnenkant dood is? Natuurlijk sal die ouwers hulle kinders wil sien. Hulle was wel op die toneel, maar nie wat ek weet, enige kennis wat ek dra van die publiek wat op die toneel gekom en gegaan het, glad nie. Chris says there that essentially he'd like to see anyone keep a parent off the scene when they've just been told their child is lying dead inside the building. And I guess that's fair enough. Chris also says that to his knowledge, no member of the public was allowed onto the scene. For me, it's Chris's presence itself that, as I said earlier, also made this case different from others I've looked at. After the police and Charnel and Mina's family members, Chris Saunders was one of the first people on the scene. As I mentioned before, this is unusual. More often than not, private investigators are called in long after the case has been initially investigated at least once. Either the family has lost trust in the police, 
or the police have admitted they have no further leads. But not in this case. Here Saunders was on the scene immediately. And not just that, he was given access to the crime scene and seemingly quickly welcomed into the investigation by the SAPS officers involved. I asked him about this. Why does he think he was called in so early, and was the engagement he had with police standard for his investigations? Yeah, I was contacted by a person that was involved by the Stella Cossays. Uh, nee, dit is, dit is nie snaak, sê, gewone kry ek maar een saak wat koud is, ja. Maar vir ons, hoe, hoe, hoe vinniger ons op die toneel kan kom, hoe beter vir ons. Uh, ja, ek is ingeroep, redelijk vannacht, dit gebeur nie al dag nie. So Chris agrees that it was out of the ordinary that he would be called in to a scene so early. But he also says, it's better for his investigation which makes complete sense. I was contacted by someone on the behavior that is Stella by the school. I was not by the ouders myself. The ouders I didn't know at all. I didn't know who the ouders were until I came to the hospital. No, and because I had me in, I don't think that it's because the police can't do their work in Stella. I don't think was the reason. Die persoon het my tevore al gebruik met die onderzoek. So ek glo hy het sy rede gehad hoekom hy my ingeroep het. Wat het precies is, sal ek nie vir jou kan sê nie. Now that is pretty interesting. The overwhelming suggestion has always been that one of the family members had hired Chris Saunders. But this is not the case. Chris says... He was called in and hired by a member of Stella High School's management body. And that actually makes a lot of sense. I can understand why the school would want their own parallel investigation. They were tasked with the protection of Chanel and Mina while the girls were in their care. They had to have known that questions would be asked and that they would need to preempt any civil claims by the parents. And having this information also puts something else to rest. The school would have had no agenda behind who was responsible for these murders. They would have had to have admitted they'd left the security gate open at the girl's request that night, regardless of who'd committed the crime, even if it had been someone living on the school premises at the time. The identity of the perpetrator would have made no difference to the school. And really, whether it was a suicide or a murder, would also have been neither here nor there in terms of the school's level of culpability. Here's what Chris had to say about the cooperation level of the police with him in this case. Yeah, I get good samenwerking from the police in Stella. But... Wat die publiek moet besef is dit, ons privaatspeders werk saam die politie. Ons werk nie teen die politie. Gewoonlik werk ons saam met die onderzoekbeamte hand aan hand. Dis nie dat ek my gang gang en die politie gaan hulle gang nie. Ons doen ons onderzoek en ons sit om die tafel en ons kyk wat ons by mekaar gekry het. Dis gewoonlik dit. Ek werk met redelijk baie sake en redelijk baie onderzoekbeamtes op die verskillende sake. So, en ek krij altyd goeie samenwerking van die politie. Chris says that he did get very good cooperation from the police, and that is almost always his experience on cases he works. We know that the SAPS is very under-resourced, so it would make sense that they would be grateful for any help that they can get from a qualified and professional investigator. And really, it can't hurt to have an extra set of eyes and ears. What does interest me, though, is the significant role that Chris played in this case, in terms of securing the suspect and delivering him to the police station. 
There was no doubt that Sander Belsma was a suspect from very early on in this case. In fact, we would hear, and we'll discuss this more in episode 2, that Zander had made threats toward Marna, and he'd been physically threatening toward Charnel before their murders. Zander Belsma was not on the scene after the discovery of the victims that day, but his name was on the lips of the people there almost immediately. While the crowd gathered outside the hostel, Zander Belsma was on his father's farm. Zander claims that the first he heard about Charnel's death was around 7am that morning when Charnel's cousin had phoned to tell him. I asked Chris Saunders when he first heard the name Zander Belsma. Met my aankomst op die toneel en al ek die toneel besoek het. En ek en die ouwers by mekaar was saam met die persoon wat my geskakel het van die beheerlichaam. Is daar genoem dier een van die ouwers dat Zander Bylsma die vorige nacht of die ochtend geskakel het en hy gesê het, hy is op pad kos, hy is toe. Dit het gemaakt dat hy my eerste verdachte is. Om rede sy naam pertinent genoem is en om rede dat uitdrukkelijk gesê is, dier een getuie ook, dat hy op pad is kos hy is toe om te kom moeilikheid maak. Dit was my rede hoekom ek eerste na Zander Bylsma toe is. Chris says that after he arrived at the scene, he was standing outside with Charnel and Marna's parents when he first heard the name Zander Bylsma. This information would likely have come from Ronnie Ho, Charnel's father. When Charnel's boyfriend at the time, a young man named Brandon, had found out about Charnel and Marna's death, he'd immediately phoned Ronnie and told him that he'd been with Charnel the night before and Zander had phoned to say that he was coming through to the hostel. We don't really know where Chris's inference that Zander had gone there to make trouble comes from. In Brandon's statement, he told police that Zander had insisted, despite Chanel's protests, that he wanted to drop off some clothing of hers that he still had. He said Chanel had been unhappy that he was coming there, and it's likely that this is where the inference about making trouble came from. At this point, Chris would go out to Zander's father's home. He wanted to speak with Zander himself but this was also suggested as a precaution, because just minutes before, Stefan Engelbrecht, Mana's father, had sped off in his bucky, headed to the Balsma farm. Although there are numerous accounts of Zander's name being mentioned almost immediately in connection with the girl's deaths, Chris wants to make it clear that at that point, the young man was just a suspect. In die begin, toe Zanderse naam ook aan my genoem is en gesê is, was het nie te sê, hy slaas skuldig nie. Zander was nog steeds onskuldig. So, ek, het, ek kon nie sê dit was Zander nie, voor ek nie met Zander gepraat het. En Zander het in soveel woorde erken self, dat hy die moorde gepleeg het. Maar ek het glad in my onderzoek gedink, das Chris Saunders used a voice recorder to record every minute of his conversation from the moment he arrived on the farm to the moment he dropped Zander off at the police station for questioning. The contents of that conversation, especially during the drive to Stella, would become the source of both confirmation for those who believed in Zander's guilt and also fodder for Zander's own claims of innocence. We heard snippets of this recording during the documentary. Most importantly, we heard what sounded very much like a confession to murder from Zander. While the contents of the confession itself were not used as evidence in court, it was used to rebut one claim. Zander would go on to retract the eventual full confession he'd made to a magistrate and claim that he had only known certain things which seemed to be guilty knowledge because Chris Saunders had fed him that information. 
The recording of that drive was therefore entered into evidence to refute that claim. For those who continue to believe in Zander Belsma's innocence, this recorded confession became a source of complaint. Zander had taken several antidepressant tablets before Saunders had arrived at his home that day. One source describes the quantity as being a handful, but we don't know for sure how many he took. Zander does sound sleepy in the tape, but some would say that the intoxication combined with the method of interviewing that Saunders was using and Zander's youth was the perfect breeding ground for a false confession. Saunders appeared, whether knowingly or not, to be using elements of what is called the read interviewing technique. This is a three-step process involving fact analysis, followed by the behavior analysis interview, which is a non-accusatory interview designed to develop investigative and behavioral information, followed, when appropriate, by the read nine steps of interrogation. And it is these interrogation steps that seem woven into Saunders' conversation with Zander. There's absolutely nothing legally wrong with what he says, but this technique is thought to elicit a large number of false confessions from young offenders, as well as mentally challenged offenders. At 19, Zander may be considered young. Zander starts out by denying that he had anything to do with the crime. He says he wasn't even there. Then, little by little, as Saunders presents the facts, he acknowledges first that he was there, then that he was inside the building, and eventually he describes how he murdered both Marna and Charnel. And as much as there might be people querying how fair the recorded confession was, the fact is, it wasn't used to convict Zander Belsma. He went on to confess to police and a magistrate. Elements of that confession, such as the way in which Chanel was killed, could not have been fed to Zander by Saunders because the information was only gleaned in the autopsies, which had not even been done when Zander confessed. Unfortunately, Zander did himself no favours during this time. He lied on several occasions and was caught out in those lies. His first defence attorney, who I've spoken with, would drop Zander as a client when he discovered that he'd lied about Saunders having been present at his police confession. This was not true. Zander was also found to have been trying to plan an escape from custody. We'll discuss this more in the next episode. The case against Zander Belsma was built predominantly on circumstantial evidence, and a mountain of it. And one of the biggest sticking points for many was that there was no physical evidence tying Zander to the scene. Many wonder how it is possible for someone to commit two close contact murders and not leave a single shred of DNA behind. There's an argument that's often attributed to scientist Carl Sagan, which says an absence of evidence is not necessarily evidence of absence. In other words, just because you can't prove something or someone was somewhere doesn't mean they weren't there. Offenders are convicted on the basis of circumstantial evidence all the time. In fact, a mountain of circumstantial evidence is more credible than a DNA match, because DNA can be transferred in many different ways, and not all of them relate to criminal activity. If DNA from Zander had been found on Charnel or Mina's clothing or persons, for instance, and there was no other circumstantial evidence pointing to his guilt, it would have been unfair to convict him, because that DNA could have been transferred to them at any point. I do think that Zander may have done it. And the reason why I say so is because logically it makes sense 
And then also that if he did not do it, then he would have tried harder to try and get his story out to say that he's innocent. But there is a side of me that wants to believe that he didn't do it. And I think therein lies universal truth. No one really wants to believe that Zander Balsma could do what Zander Balsma did. No one wants to believe that they could send their daughters to school, to a place where they should have been safe, and have them face a horrific death. And most of all, no one wants to believe that those we put our trust in, those who say they love us, could possibly be the most dangerous people of all. This is the end of episode one of Stella Murders, the official companion podcast. Episode two is ready and waiting for you to listen to. In that episode, we'll hear more from psychologist Elmarie Clarsons about the psychology behind abusive relationships, coercive control, and deception. And Mariska Kutzer will share more about her interactions with Sander Bailsma and his mother. Thank you for listening, and I'll chat to you in episode two.